Hello, ho, 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 and welcome to Third Times a Charm, the show that takes an in-depth look at the third installment of a franchise. Today's film is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation from 1989, directed by Jeremiah S. Shashik. I'm your host, Mike Griswold. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy Festivus to you all. Did you hear that? Is it Santa? Or could it be Krumpus? Ooh. Were you, the listener, good or bad this year? I think you've been very good, which is why I decided to cover this modern holiday classic in a very iconic film series. I use that word iconic like that because joining me today is host of High School Slumber Party himself, Brian Late Night Rodriguez. Brian hasn't been back since he, Kara, and myself traversed the apocalyptic wasteland that is Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Just to clarify, this is not the third movie in the National Lampoon series, but the third National Lampoon's vacation movie. So who knows, maybe one day I'll cover National Lampoon's Movie Madness, which is the third movie to carry the banner title of National Lampoon's. This month, my show, Third Time's a Charm, is crossing over with the latest season of Cinemakers. Over there, Joey Cara and myself are covering the filmography of Amy Heckerling, and she just so happened to have directed the second vacation movie, National Lampoon's European Vacation. But that's not all, because Amy Heckerling also directed the first two Look Who's Talking movies, but not the third. So I decided, as a bonus episode this month, that I would cover Look Who's Talking Now, a.k.a. Look Who's Talking 3, over here on Third Time's a Charm, just to close the book on that series once and for all. Here's a preview of that review. It's secretly a Christmas movie, too. So it's going to fit right in thematically this month. I hope you enjoy all the Cage Club crossover content this month, and be sure to check out all the other great programs over on cageclub.me. New show alert! Catch my new show, within this show, starting right now. Welcome to No Part 3. No, 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 no. Part 3. Episode 1. No Part 3 is about movies that have yet to make a third installment in the franchise. Episode 1, right now. Okay, let's go. So the first movie I think needs a Part 3 is Sister Act. I love Whoopi Goldberg movies, and the Sister Act movies are full of great music and positive themes. I'm not saying Whoopi needs to star or something, but the premise is still viable, and just thinking of the modern musicians that could pop up or actually star in this movie gets me very excited. Sister Act even got a Broadway show, which you can probably find online in its entirety without looking very hard. So there you have it. Episode 1 of No Part 3, Sister Act. No, 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 no. Part 3. One last thing. There's no novelization for this movie, but it was based on an article written by John Hughes for National Lampoon's magazine, just like the original Vacation movie. Well, guess what? I read the article, and at the end of the show, I debut Article Club, an offshoot of the famous book club segment I'm starting to become known for. I just can't help myself anymore, and chances are, down the line, I'll be reading more and more source material when a novelization doesn't exist. So now grab some eggnog, wrap the cat, and empty the shitter. Because it's time to take a Christmas vacation.
Ho, ho, ho. Hello, Brian, and welcome back to Third Time's a Charm. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. Glad to be here, and a happy Thanksgiving that we just had. I hope you enjoyed yours. Yeah, how are you? Are you still sleeping off that turkey? A little bit. That turkey thing is true. That really does make you tired. I, I wore my big pants today. I mean, for Thanksgiving, so. I think even Mythbusters did an episode on tryptophan and its, uh, you know, sleepy effects. Was it proven? Yes. Myth proven. <laughs> You've probably noticed by now, but I'm sure you noticed a month ago even, the Christmas decorations have been up for quite a while. <laughs> Are you getting in the holiday spirit? Would you say you're in the Christmas mood? Yes and no. I haven't bought my tree yet, but I'm going to do that soon. I'm a procrastinator with Christmas because I really appreciate the Thanksgiving spirit, but I'm getting into it. And, and the best way to get into it, right, is like watching these Christmas movies. So this helped. This definitely helped. There's not much of a difference between the Thanksgiving spirit and the Christmas spirit. It's more like a decor shift. Fair. That's fair. <laughs> I feel like ultimately it's it's nothing like, you know, Halloween is such so drastically different than the others. It's funny because like, not that people decorate a lot for Thanksgiving, but the Halloween decor is similar to the Thanksgiving decor, but not the Christmas decor. So Thanksgiving is like a transitional decor holiday because like there's pumpkins for Thanksgiving. They just don't have scary faces on them. That's right. It transitions with the look from Halloween, but then transitions from the spirit into Christmas. Yes, that's fair. Very nice. What are we talking about? (laughs) This is awesome. This is starting off to a great start. So we're here today to talk about National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. It's December. October was a lot of fun on the network because everyone, I feel, got into the spirit of doing thematic episodes. Uh, I released two horror movie episodes that month. And I think this month, a lot of shows are going to try and stick with the Christmas theme or the holiday theme. And so here today, I have Brian to talk about Christmas Vacation. Well, Mike, I'm glad you have me on because unfortunately on my show, there are almost zero Christmas high school films. No kidding. None come to mind. There is a list of Christmas movies on Wikipedia, and they range from stuff like Die Hard, where they just it takes place at Christmas, to, you know, full-on It's a Wonderful Life type revolving around the meaning of Christmas movies. So I, don't, I would double-check that list. There's got to be one or two. There are a couple, and we finally found our Christmas film, and I guess I could promote it now, even though it's for Christmas, because I will have a Christmas special. That is 100% happening. Cool. Okay. But the film we'll be doing, and, you know, I don't know if you want to do your promos now, but this film that, it's in the theaters now, but it came out in, like, festivals maybe, like, a year or even two years ago, called Anna and the Apocalypse. Oh, excellent choice. Yeah. And it's like a Christmas zombie musical, supposedly. I haven't watched it yet, but that's all I could find. And there's some, like, Disney Channel ones, but only, like, one or two. Mm -hmm. It's just a lot of high school Halloween films. Almost no high school Christmas films. Because I guess, like, school's out, and I don't know, it's not something, you don't associate teenagers with Christmas much, if that makes sense. I guess. I don't know. I guess you don't really review the sort of the Hallmark movies or the Lifetime movies either, but I would suspect... But there's not too many of those. I even looked there. Hmm, you would know. I'll take your word for it. I'm going to stop fishing and <laughs> get on with it. Well, I'll have to do some more hard research, but... Well, guest on as many other shows this month as you can, so that you can talk about Christmas movies. I'm trying. (laughs) To show my hand here, one's as good as this one, because, man, do I love this movie. Absolutely. I have to say, I feel like I've been blessed, because every time I'm on your show, it's a movie that I'm 
enjoy watching. Hashtag blast, hashtag <laughs> third time's a charm blast. <laughs> and for those of you out there snickering at me because of Godfather 3, just give it a chance, okay? Yeah, no, I, I feel like people have given it another chance, and yeah, maybe they see it in a different light now, so thanks for helping me with that. But this one, this one does not need that kind of treatment, because I think this is universally appreciated. Yes, unlike the movie we just reviewed coming out today, also on the Cinemakers feed, the Amy Heckerling run of Cinemakers I'm doing over there with Joey and Kara, we reviewed European Vacation, which, not the Soa good, so... <laughs> You know, I'm glad they bounced back with this chapter. Yeah, every time I try to watch European Vacation, I can't even, like, get through it. Yeah, it's tough. I hadn't seen it in, you know, maybe 20 years, and looking back now, it was, ooh, it was, that was a very long way down a very rough holiday road. <laughs> By far, I would say the worst of the franchise. Well, I don't know, I haven't seen Christmas Vacation 2, the one with Cousin Eddie on an island or something. But... <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. There's, like, all told, you know, TV movies, straight to VHS, direct to video, theatrical releases over its entire history. There's about, like, 70 or so National Lampoon movies holding the National Lampoon title above its name but this was like yeah in the very early days this was the sixth movie you know that that had national lampoons attached to it it was the third in the vacation series of national lampoons movies so yeah i kind of lost track of them somewhere around van wilder started to veer off into other territories where i realized oh they're not gonna all be vacation movies starring chevy chase no <laughs> I think you have to say, though, that this one feels like Christmas Vacation is totally 100%. Not 100%, but it could feel like a standalone movie. There are little, like, Easter eggs for, like, the fans of the series, but I'm pretty sure I saw this one before any of them. Okay, so let's get into that real quick, because there's a lot to talk about, but why don't you tell me a little bit about your history with this movie, with the Vacation franchise, you know, how many have you seen, how far down the holiday road have you traveled, and, you know, did you see Cousin Eddie get stranded? on an island. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, what's your history with the Vacation series? Vacation, the franchise, I'm not too sure. Honestly, this might be the order that I've seen the Vacation films. Christmas Vacation, Vegas Vacation, Original Vacation, European Vacation, and then like the, the Ed Helms one. Remake Vacation. Yes, Remake Vacation. Well, I guess it's not a remake. Oh, I haven't seen it yet. So is it, it's not, it's a sequel? He's Rusty. Ed Helms is Rusty. Oh, okay. So it is a sequel. Yeah, it's a sequel but it's just still called Vacation. I hate when they do that, you know? It's a soft reboot. Yes, that's <laughs> fair to say. All right. Now, Christmas Vacation, I've been watching this movie since, like, before I can remember. I don't know when I started watching this film. Definitely in the DVD era, but maybe the early DVD era, because, like, we bought it on DVD because we were just buying Christmas movies. And now, like, my family watches Christmas Vacation every year. But Vegas Vacation came out when I was maybe middle school or high school. Mm -hmm. So... I remember seeing that when it was on, like, its first HBO run. Okay. So, like, but, like, you know, we don't need to talk about Vegas Vacation. <laughs> no, I, I still haven't seen it all the way through, but okay. It's not, honestly, it's not terrible. Like, European Vacation is terrible. Vegas Vacation is not terrible, if that makes sense. Something went on where, like, the name changed hands, and someone, or the rights of the National Lampoon title changed hands, and so a different company started making the movies after this one, you know? So, like, this was the last in the original run of National Lampoon 
productions and then a different production company started making movies and I think that's where Vegas Vacation and you know like the Ryan Reynolds movies and, and all those other movies kind of fall into place gotcha those like Ryan Reynolds one and those like I'll call them modern National Lampoon's films are very very raunchy Vegas Vacation is not Vegas Vacation is like somewhat a family film and this most definitely is a family film absolutely yeah they really hit the sweet spot because even with Animal House this series and the magazine for that matter it kind of started out as like boner comedies you know (laughs) absolutely in a way like invented the boner comedy and the original vacation it's great and all but it's got a lot of that juvenile uh sort of humor to it as well interlaced throughout absolutely and john hughes wrote the first three did he write or well he wrote the first one and this one okay he didn't write european it makes sense And the first movie and this movie are based off of articles that he wrote for the National Lampoon's magazine. So they're adapted from those articles. I read them both. We'll get into Article Club later tonight on Third Times an Article. Ooh, Article Club. Okay. Yeah. Maybe a little brief tease of Article Club and just the whole John Hughes connection. And actually, your, I don't want to say guest because she's also one of the hosts of Cinemakers this run. Kara Gail Regan was on My Breakfast Club episodes where we discussed John Hughes in depth and like pretty, pretty not PC stuff in his National Lampoon's articles. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I will just tease a little bit here. There is a character completely omitted from this story that is in what's called Christmas 59, which is the name of the article in National Lampoon's. It came out in December 1980. And there's a character in that that we will talk about later. And it is not cool. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny because that character ended up, it was, it ended up in another John Hughes story and it saw the light of day in a way. And this is sort of like the proto version of it. So we'll get there. Ooh, I can't wait. I can't wait. But yeah, so you can't remember when you first saw this movie. It's just always been a part of your life. That's great. I mean, not I don't want to say always, because not, definitely not as a small child, but certainly like since DVDs have been out. I actually saw this movie in theaters with my mom and dad. Wow. My brother and sister must have been at like sleepovers or somewhere for the weekend. And yeah, my parents were like, it's PG-13, so let's take them. And it was it was great. It was hilarious from start to finish. I was, you know, I was having a, a just a complete blast. I remember it pretty vividly. I actually tune into some of those Cinemakers episodes where I sort of have my own little trip down wistful thinking lane <laughs> because like a lot of those Amy Heckerling movies I had seen when I was, you know, like preteen. And Carrick talks about how like that's a very sort of indelible age on a person around nine or ten. So like it really, really stuck with me. Ever since then, we've had it on VHS, had it on DVD, had it on Blu-ray. Definitely much quoted around the Manzi household growing up. Oh, what a, what a quotable movie, though. What a quotable movie. Even going back a little step, like I also talk about on the vacation episode, so I don't want to talk too much about it here. On the European vacation episode, like that movie as well, like I watched a lot growing up as a kid, and I had a very different perspective going back on it as an adult, a much more negative outlook on it. But the original vacation, which I saw when I was even younger, probably like around six or seven, that also as well well, has always been a big movie in our family. It's really a lot of fun to revisit this whole series and go down memory lane and realize that a lot of the uh, pit stops along that road are 
better than bad. You know, like the first vacation and this vacation sort of cancel out that middle one. I have to ask, how many, so far, third films in a series do that in terms of restore the faith you had in a first one? Is it a common thing? Hmm. No, <laughs> it's not. But that's part of what we're here for, I feel like. Can it happen even after the sophomore slump? Can the student redeem itself? It definitely pulled the series up out of the mud a little bit. And then the thing is, it brought it to such a height that it never was able to quite capture that ever again. You know, it just like hit this mark that was impossible to reach by anyone else. Vacation, like younger people than you and I, kids are going to recognize vacation, honestly, from Christmas vacation. Hallmark has an ornament every year for this film, which is crazy. Oh, yeah. My brother has like pint glasses and little figurines and stuff that he brings out of Clark. And he gave me one last year, actually. I was like, all right, but I don't know where I'm going to put this. I guess I'll put it up on the shelf next to like Raphael the Ninja Turtle because like, <laughs> this has sort of achieved like Christmas cult status. It is now a classic. It's over 20 years old, right? So I don't know how old you need to be to be considered a classic in terms of film history. It's going to be 30 years old. Oh, well, there you go. If it's over 25 years old, I feel like it, it wins. That's the thing. It, the quality is just so good, and it's just so funny, and it's too bad that that's a rarity nowadays, but it just has such lasting power. It just is so relatable. Oh, my God. So much. So I can't wait to get into this film. Well, let's start getting into it. What's interesting about this one so far is it's the first vacation movie that does not start with that famous Holiday Road song. They came up with an all-new song, the Christmas Vacation theme. It's that time. Christmas time is here. Everybody knows there's not a better time of year. Hear that sleigh. Santa's on his way. Kick him away for Christmas Vacation. And it's got what I think is a really nice animated opening credit sequence. You're big on the animated opening credit sequences, and I was happy when I forgot that this existed. I'm just big on the animation in general. I mean, and I was nine, right? And so I remember around this time, stuff like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids had an animated opening sequence. And I think Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead had like an animated opening sequence. And so it just gave me the feeling that this was a movie for my age as well. You know, like it was telling me like, hey, you're going to get this, kid. A movie you did for my podcast, Better Off Dead, animated sequence to start off. And this movie, to a degree, is partially a cartoon, you know, a live-action cartoon. Like, it's a very slapstick, like, at times type of comedy. Yeah, very much so. But it's, it's like slapstick, but I don't know. It's not, it doesn't take me out of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, because it's not 100%. It's not Naked Gun. It's not a parody. It's not, a, you know, but it's just, if anything, it's just Clark as a character is this accident-prone, Harold Lloyd-esque type of comedic character. I feel like some of his 
Pratt falls and stepping on planks that smack him in the face. You know, that's very vaudeville, sort of old school, but the world around him is very grounded, it seems. Yeah, and and that kind of stuff makes sense, and it's almost, like, believable for this character, because just as a character, he overdoes so much, so it feels like it's, like, this cartoon things that happen to him are justified, if that makes sense. Yeah, because when you're going to staple thousands of lights onto your house, like, it's not going to go smoothly. I don't care who you are. <laughs> and going to get a Christmas tree, you know, he can't just go to a lot and buy a Christmas tree or buy a fake tree. Like, he's got to drive out into the middle of nowhere with his family and get into, like, road rage. Oh, man. Battles on the road on the way. <laughs> this is a film of, like, vignettes, almost. Oh, totally, yeah. I love almost all of them, if that makes sense. This opening thing is such an awesome little, like, way to open the film. It has consequences later because the tree is almost a character in this, and he gets the tree here. Yeah, the tree is like a central thread. Like, it's a, they're setting it up now, but it's going to come back, like, several times along the way. And the lines start here from, like, the, like you said, the road rage things, where he's just like, kids, look, a deer, and he flips the guy off from the singing in the car. And it, w- what it does here, it also ties us back into, like, the original vacation film. Yeah, road trip. With, with the road trip thing, and it's almost like... The car dynamic. Yeah, and it's almost like, sorry for European vacation. We're coming back home, kids, you know. Yeah, oh, real quick, that's a real funny thing I noticed this time that it never struck me, is that it's called vacation, but it's a staycation. Like, we get to see where the Griswolds live, their neighborhood, and, and that whole thing, so... Yeah, it's more like that What when you used to say, oh, I'm on vacation from school, like time off, rather than I'm going somewhere. And even before they get to the tree, they have that incident where... He's trying to pass the truckers, and he gets caught underneath the big <laughs> logging rig. Like, that's an example. Like, that's a, one of those Looney Tunes examples that fits so well, because it's a Clark incident. That happened with Ellen or, you know, Audrey and Rusty or something. Like, I wouldn't buy it, but I buy it because <laughs> it's Clark. And the situation has escalated to a point where something crazy is going to happen. Like you said, it just it makes so much sense in the world, and it also sets the tone for the rest of the film. And they keep doing that like with every scene. They all feel like almost every sequence feels like a joke and the punchline is on Clark most of the time. Like when they go to finally find the perfect tree and they trek out in the middle of nowhere, he forgot the chainsaw. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then just boom, that next image is like that tree on the car with the roots sticking out. So really quick here, you mentioned you hadn't gotten your tree yet. When you do, are you going to trek your fiance out into the middle of nowhere or are you going to get a fake one you know now that you're getting married you might want to spend money on a fake one now so you don't have to keep buying one every year do you have a tree plan no this is a debate every year I, I wish I could go out to the woods and get my own tree, but it has to be middle ground. She wants a fake one or no tree sometimes. Really? No tree? That's not unheard of, but it's uncommon. No, it's unheard of here because that's never going to happen. <laughs> I like that real tree with that, that scent and that feel of it. Oh, yeah. And, you know, every time it's nice, and I, and I like it. We don't go in the woods, but we go to a place we like, Stu Leonard's and Yonkers. Shout out. 
Stu Leonard's is like a like a big supermarket that sells a lot of trees. There's this documentary I saw. I don't know if it's still on Netflix. It's somewhere online, but it's about this guy. I think it, it's called like Tree Man or something, but he's like a Christmas tree salesman. And every year he comes down from Canada and posts up on the same sidewalk in Manhattan. Ooh, that's cool. I'm going to check out and try and find the link and trailer for the show notes. But if I do, I'll send it to you. Maybe you could hit this guy up this year if he's still around. I don't know if he's still around. The Manhattan street trees, though, are expensive. There are some blocks where the trees are marked up hundreds of dollars more than like what they should. It's crazy. Well, part of the whole scam is, you know, the later you get there, the more expensive the trees are, right? And Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and then the worst ones are left, and they end up being the most expensive. Yep. So I best be getting my tree soon, I'll put it that way. Well, how about growing up and everything? Did you guys have uh, real trees or fake trees? Or do you remember a tree ever catch fire growing up, like in this movie or anything? No, no. No trees catching fire. We were a real tree family for most, most of my life. Usually because of me. I was always against the fake tree. Wow, I can't believe you had so much clout as just like one of the kids in your family that like your parents were, were like, listen to Brian. You're like the kid in the Twilight Zone episode. You're like, I'll send you to the cornfield. <laughs> no, I think it was. Honestly, my father worked a lot and he wasn't around a lot. And I'm the oldest of my siblings. So I guess like, I don't know, my mom would ask me and I would just give her a hard time. I guess yeah, I was... a little seniority being the oldest sibling. <laughs> yeah. You know, every time she's like, what about getting a fake tree? And I was like, no, eventually we got house renovation. And we wanted a bigger tree, and we got, like, a big real tree one year, but that was such a hassle. So eventually my mom got, like, a bigger fake tree. But, like, a couple years, I insisted that she also get a, like, four or five foot real tree just to appease me. So you had two trees, double down. Yes. And then college slash moving out, I had no more say in it, and I think it went completely fake. I never had a say in our family. We alternated. I remember first memories of the tree were that it was fake, but I just remember like it being a plastic tree. Later on, when that tree had to go, we tried real ones for a while, and you know, I don't really have a preference. Right now, I have a fake one in storage, and I guess you could just go out and buy pine smell to spray around the house, you know, if you get to be sort of ghetto about it, but you know, it's, <laughs> it could be a very ghetto Christmas. That's fine. No judgment. <laughs> Okay. There might be a series of questions throughout this podcast relating to the movie in regards to if you went through any of these experiences as well. So, <laughs> Absolutely. I love when they bring it home and oh Clark comes God. out with the hockey mask it. on and the chainsaw. And I'm just thinking, you know, Brian's going to be on this show and he hasn't seen a lot of horror movies. There's been a lot of chatter online and offline, or I should say on podcast and off podcasts about his lack of horror knowledge. Maybe we should have done Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, Better Watch Out, instead of Christmas Vacation. <laughs> I'll hold in that off till next year. At least we get a little touch of, you know, you get to see how far the reach of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Friday the 13th have gone. They have saturated the pop culture so deeply that they are a joke in a Christmas Vacation movie. <laughs> Which, I mean, like, I'm not that removed. I got the joke as soon as I saw it, and I always got the joke, you know? Phew. No, I know. I'm giving you a, a little bit of a hard time. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, why is he wearing a hockey mask? I don't understand. I mean, I don't know if we're going to touch on the neighbors, though, but I would like to. Yes. As we go along, and there's a couple cast members I'd like to point out, and I'll let you start 
by naming the neighbors. What's the guy's name? I, obviously, Julia Louis-Dreyfus is the woman. Margot. The husband is Nicholas Guest. He is related to Christopher Guest. Oh, I was going to ask. Yeah. I had never seen him in stuff before. This is the first I really checked him out on IMDb and everything. And so I think he's hilarious in this. Yeah. Oh, they're both great as this like couple. I don't know what they're doing living in this neighborhood, but they're de- they're just like a yuppie couple who moved into this neighborhood and just they're even debating later in the film like whether they should have a tree, but we can get into that. But just they are in their own movie. Like I want their movie. <laughs> you know, like Julie Louis Dreyfus is just fantastic because she's sort of the dominant one in the relationship you come to find out that that the husband is sort of put in his place all the time by her or like she just kind of can control him throughout it he's just more of a coward like she has to go and deal with the griswolds most of the time i just love the sort of power dynamic that they've represented well then you know i feel like they're just and it's not a bad thing i feel like margo and todd are just this more especially 80s modern couple you know, they both probably have successful jobs. Just like their workout uniforms, the way they dress. It's so the opposite of Clark's family. That's a good contrast because Clark and his family is sort of based more on the Rockwellian nuclear family model, if you will. And it's kind of funny how the vacation movies, in a way, are a comment on how that just naturally doesn't work in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, it's just gonna, it's just a cause for conflict. But yeah, they are sort of representing the new family, like older, maybe not going to have any kids, or if they do, not till they're older. Like, yes, very successful yuppies. You know, their house is furnished yeah. by the sharper image. Just all the latest sort of tech of the time. Double income, no kids. Yeah. And I was not aware of who Julia Louis-Dreyfus was at the time. I don't know how much the world knew of her until Seinfeld, but I became a huge fan through Seinfeld and, you know, Veep, and she's just amazing in this movie. An American treasure, and you could even see it, like, here, you know, in this little nothing, it could be a nothing part between the two of them, and it's just awesome. And just, again, one of my favorite lines is, like, what are you going to do with that tree, Griswold? And he's like, Clark is like, bend over, I'll show you. And he's like, you got a lot of nerve talking to me like that. <laughs> he goes, I wasn't talking to you. Yeah. Obviously, he was talking to Marco. Where do you think you're going to put a tree that big? Bend over, and I'll show you. You've got a lot of nerve talking to me like that, Griswold. I wasn't talking to you. That's very good, because, like, I'm glad they went that route with the neighborly kind of thing, like the neighborly rivalry. Like, I, I like that trope in suburban comedy. I think they played it really well here. Definitely agree with that. So good. Again, we, we and we see them a couple times. and Yeah, kind of like everything that Clark does will have, like, a an effect on them somehow have like a related <laughs> effect like a cause and effect so this is kind of interesting coming up next when we we have clark at work and we get sort of story-wise i guess it's a plot point that really carries through until the end of the movie we find out that clark is holding out for his yearly holiday bonus because he's going to put a pool in into the backyard and it turns out we'll find out the boss has canceled bonuses this year. And so that's like a huge cause of his like stress and anxiety and all of that kind of thing throughout the movie. And I thought that was pretty interesting. And it is also kind of interesting that like the same year, The Simpsons debuted with a Christmas special on television and the bonuses at the nuclear plant were also canceled and Homer did not get a Christmas bonus that year as well. So it's sort of like the same plot, but they both worked very well, pretty differently. And I thought that was kind of cool. 
Yeah, I really liked seeing Clark's business dynamic thing there. Is it revealed in the other vacations that he's an inventor? Not not that he is an inventor, but that he worked in food. I think he said in a previous movie, though, that he worked in condiments, not additives. That's what he says in the beginning of European Vacation. They're on a game show, and they're like, Clark, what do you do for a living? And he's like, yeah, I work for this company, and yeah, I'm in condiments, not additives. But I think in this one, he is an additive, so maybe he moved up in the company. It sounds like whatever he's working on, this artificial nougat binding kind of thing that he's talking about it's getting a lot of traction around the office so yeah so that co-worker of his yeah like i've seen him in a lot of stuff but i know you weren't a friends guy but he's chandler's like boss recurringly in like a couple episodes and he's pretty much like he's not the same guy but like you could see how it'd be in the same world just like corporate man if that makes sense you know he's a character actor if you look hard enough he's in a bunch of stuff he's in raising arizona shout out nicholas cage cage club Prime, the original thread. I think his biggest like sitcom thing, though, he was another boss character. He was Kevin James's boss in The King of Queens. Oh wow! He plays like boss guys, I guess. We also get Doris Roberts, right? Raymond's mom from Everyone Loves Raymond. She's in here. Oh, you're right. Another sitcom connection here. Well, actually, a, a lot of sitcom connection. Oh, right, because we have the guy from what I call the nerd show. The fake nerd show, because I don't, I don't know if it's actually like as smart as it, it plays off. Galecki plays Rusty. Yeah, Johnny Galecki plays Rusty. You know what's so funny? So I was flipping channels. And that show, The Connors, it's the Roseanne spinoff. Okay, yes. I know what you're going to say, but tell this. Yes. And and I'm looking at it, and I guess he was in the he was in the original Roseanne as like... Yeah, toward the end, I think. Yeah. Yeah, the boyfriend of the main Connor girl. I don't know. I didn't really watch Roseanne. But in the new one, he's like remarried, and he's married to Juliette Lewis, who's his sister in this film. So weird. I have to imagine they did that consciously. Oh, yeah, yeah, but I mean, why would you do that consciously? Because it, <laughs> it, it brings up images of incest from this movie. <laughs> it's gross. <laughs> what the hell? You're right. Like, hey, remember when they played brother and sister? And they're like, they very much have, like, sexual chemistry on the Connors from, like, the little two minutes I watched. She is on the new show Camping on HBO, which is very good, which I only caught an episode or two of so far, but everyone on that show is pretty great. Yeah, it's kind of weird to see the two of them so young, because I don't remember them, especially Galecki, I don't think I've seen him in anything else aside from some of his sitcom work, but I know Juliette Lewis is in like the remake of Cape Fear by Scorsese, and she looks extremely young in that because she is, but I had forgotten how different she looked, because I feel like after this movie, she she establishes like her permanent look to a degree and then in my eyes she just has not changed or aged or looked any different than she did in like the mid to late 90s which is okay i guess yeah she and she's honestly i really like her too we talked about her i mean with uh whip it she was in that and she was great you want to give a shout out to uh queen elizabeth <laughs> Yes, Queen Elizabeth II, if you're still listening, much love. But yeah, no, our, we, I really enjoyed our Whippet episode. She, again, she was awesome in that. The first time I remember seeing her not in this film was uh, What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Oh, okay. I've never seen that. Yeah, she's, she's in that. And she's in old school as well. Oh, right. Yeah, she pops up in the beginning of that. Anytime I see her, she's always doing a good job. These kids don't do as much, obviously, as like Rusty and Audrey from the original movie or, or even as much as the kids in the second movie in Europe. But I think they're my favorite pair. You know, I don't know if that's 
blasphemous to the original two. I like the gag. It sort of started, I guess, when Anthony Michael Hall didn't want to come back for the second one, and then they realized, hey, well, why don't we just recast both the kids? And I kind of think it's funny how it became a running joke that the kids always are recast in every single version of the Vacation series. Yeah, no, it, it is pretty funny, and like their ages clearly aren't corresponding here, but that's okay. It kind of adds to like the cartoonish world of this. Well, you know what it reminds me of, which I kind of like these types of series where there's sort of more of a loose mythology, if you will, if you want to talk about the Griswold mythology or whatever, but it's more like Mad Max where the elements are there, but they're told in a different way. You know, we still have Clark and Ellen and Rusty and Audrey, but, you know, Rusty and Audrey don't look the same because we're remembering this Christmas a little differently than we remembered our trip to Wally World. So maybe the details are being shifted around a little bit. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a cool way to look at it. I'm looking now like all the Rusty Griswolds. Okay, so you have Anthony Michael Hall. Very important to my podcast, Anthony Michael Hall. He's the first one. Part of the Brat Pack, right? Yeah. Awesome actor. Jason Lively is the second one. And those of you who've been listening to High School Slumber Party for our Halloween special might recognize that last name as Jason Lively is the brother of Robin Lively, star of Teen Witch. And isn't Robin Lively and Jason Lively are related to Blake Lively. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's their <laughs> sister too. So you got a connection there. I mean, I didn't know that till I'm looking at it now. We said Johnny Galecki in this one. Ethan Embry is in Vegas Vacation. Who already was sort of established to a degree, you know? He had done a couple movies. Yeah, no, he wasn't like a nobody when he did that for sure. And then you have eventually Ed Helms. That's right. I keep forgetting that new one is within the same kind of canon in a way. I just keep forgetting that new one all the time. I still haven't seen it, but I guess it can't be any worse than, you know, European Vacation. I saw it. It's just hard to get into, you know, if that makes sense. But it's not, it's definitely not worse than European Vacation. That's very hard. Next up is another, like, major chunk of the movie, which is a really pretty epic with a really great payoff. And this is him setting up the Christmas lights. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and this has sort of become like a thing associated with this movie. If you see these houses around your neighborhood, I know there's there's one or two in my neighborhood alone. And I live in a very small town, you know, compared to the ones around me. But, you know, it's called going like full Griswold. And it's just when you deck your house out, you know, beyond belief. And like you can see it from space, or, you know, or Google Maps. This is the start of that journey right here. And it's going to take us for like another like 15, 20 minutes or so and interweave throughout a while of this movie. It's just so unforgettable. Even the simple things of even like the ladder falling down, you know? Yes. Well, that's like the Buster Keaton stuff, right? When he's hanging off of the gutters or stapling his sleeve to the house instead of the light <laughs> and getting caught. Like that's all that Clark comedy stuff. And it's great that it's sort of self-contained in this movie to him, right? Like it's just all on him. And then we kind of cut back to the family and they're like watching TV or sleeping on the couch and, you know, making a gingerbread house and stuff. And so it's kind of nice that we just have like a, a little like short film of Clark trying to put the lights up. And Chevy Chase, he, look, people don't like working with him. Notoriously hard to work with. Although the director of this movie said he was extremely nice and pleasant to him. He left it at that. <laughs> the only reason the director of this movie is the director of this movie is just Chris Columbus wouldn't work with Chevy Chase again. Yes, and John Hughes said he would make it up to Chris Columbus, and he did by writing Home Alone and offering him that film to direct. So... 
that's a big makeup, so that's fair. Like, he's like, I got you, you know? <laughs> right, right. Well, because this was supposed to be him. This was, you know, all laid out. And you can kind of tell, I mean, it, to me, nothing wrong with it, but it feels a little like it's on autopilot, that it doesn't really need much of a direction. Like, it, the material seems really strong, and everybody's really kind of set in their characters. And when we get to some of these parents, like, they're pros. Like, they are super pros. You know, just real vets and stuff. So, like, yeah, it just feels like didn't need too much caressing if that's the thing maybe it needed some corralling you know maybe that's where it came in but like for the most part it just feels like nice and straightforward it's such a good fun script that it pretty much i don't want to say directs itself because that's like that would be well, so... i think that's kind of what i'm getting at i'm not i mean like in a way that kind of feels like john hughes's type of writing and you know like i'm sure you could just read everything you need to from the page and like he's such a good writer to a degree but when it comes to like situation and stuff like that it seems everything is already there that you could just yell action and it'll happen. But I mean, I don't know for sure. I don't want to take too much credit from the director. I feel like the maybe the most difficult or hands-on directing stuff would probably be the physical stuff. Like you can't direct that too much. It's just like setting that up, you know? Right. Staging and yeah. Staging. Yeah, that's the word for it. Yeah, no, this this is a movie that needs a lot of staging. So that's where like probably the director is more necessary i guess because <laughs> it just seems like chevy chase is at this point like a such a you know a veteran too at this and a natural and when we get randy quaid like his character is so well established in the first movie he's really bringing that all that back as well it's just like it just feels like it's nicely set up to just go on its own and uh and then this light thing is just it takes up a large percentage of this film but it doesn't feel like it's dragging it's like this its own little movie in the movie, like the light saga. I mean, I just like how epic it is, basically. Like, I like how they tease it out and they pay it off extremely well. Yeah, because, like, he first, he's first putting it on. I mean, I guess we should... Uh, this is kind of a tough movie to talk about because, like you said, there's so many, like, interwoven things. Probably a little earlier in the film, right, is when we find out that both sets of grandparents are coming. Yeah, the in-laws are coming. They're about to show up. Yeah, and he's like, oh, you know... Like, when it's first teased in that great, like, sap... They're in bed together. They have the sap on their hands with the magazines. And it's like, I can't believe my mother's coming. You know, that whole thing. And he's like, oh, the more the merrier. You know, he's, which is totally Clark in terms of he's just such an overdoer. Like, he actually means the more the merrier because he th- not, I mean, eventually it gets too much with a particular person showing up. But uh, when the grandparents arrive, there's that great scene. Obviously, they wouldn't arrive at the same time, but they do. And it reminds me of being a kid of when the relatives arrive at your house. You know what I'm saying? Totally. I feel like Clark is really well used in this movie for the type of character that he's been set up to be. Like the idea, like people kind of just write him off as a bumbling idiot, but really he's like a very sincere family oriented, old school sort of values type of guy in the sense that he likes to follow tradition. And what bigger tradition has America been spoon fed over the last 50, 60, 70 years than something like Christmas, you know? And like, I don't hate Christmas. I like what it's supposed to represent. I like how it's supposed to bring families together and people are supposed to forgive each other and everything. But I just think in the way that family dynamics have been established and set up, it's not always 100% compatible with Christmas. Like, because 
you're getting all the family together and everybody is very different and yes we're gonna all get on each other's nerves but we have to tolerate each other because we're under the family umbrella or the family roof so it brings up a lot of responsibility and obligation and stress and and other stuff that i don't know that clark is quite aware of like it just seems like he expects it to go off without a hitch yeah. And he should know better from his trip to Wally World <laughs> that nothing ever goes according to plan. It's because he has this obsession with the perfect old-fashioned Christmas, like you're saying. And you get hints of this when he talks to his dad later about like how Christmas was. That I mean, he kind of admits it wasn't even a disaster back then. You know, we're bouncing back and forth, but that scene where he gets caught in the attic and he's watching like the old Christmas films, it's just like that nostalgia for him, and like that's what he wants to build. It's almost like... He he doesn't say it, but it's almost his legacy. His family Christmas is his legacy, which is, again, awesome. But you know, back to the lights quick, because I want to bring up the grandparents, because one of my favorite quotes, too, is from, I guess it's Ellen's father. He's kind of, like, very grumpy around Clark. And the first time they're trying the lights and it doesn't work and they have, like, the whole drum roll thing, that grandfather or whatever like he says some kind of pissy comment and audrey it's really sweet because audrey's been like ripping this entire fiasco for the whole film so far and she pretty much does the entire film but she has this one beautiful moment of i don't want to call it weakness but one beautiful moment of love for her father when she goes to her grandfather she's like he worked you know he worked really hard on this yeah and then she goes up to clark and says you know it looks pretty even when the lights aren't on yeah the whole family is, like, with him. But I, like, again, she goes up to the grandfather. She goes, you know, he worked really hard on this. And then the grandfather just goes, yeah, so do washing machines. <laughs> like, I don't know why. That, that line always cracks me up. I love how even the kids just, like, know their father. And, like, they don't, like, resent him for it. They, like, really, really, like, support him. And I know, again, like, Rusty pulls that whole thing where he's like, oh, I got to go to bed, feed the hog, you know, and walks away. But... The love in that family gets me like almost like jealous. I wish my family had that much love. If you know, you know, if you know what I mean. When I was growing up, no one in this movie—I mean, except for maybe Rusty and Audrey—well, maybe Ellen is kind of similar to my mom in ways. But like, there's no Clark in my family. <laughs> like, my dad is nothing like that or anything. But I mean, there is a lot of family moments in my family. Like, I remember christmases vividly like they were always like this where two sides at least two sides of the family all got together for christmas eve and it was just you know like a hurricane throughout the house you know and uh, that was kept up for decades like 20 years or so that that went on and, and christmas day was always sort of you know grand central station around the house because another set of relatives or two would come by because there's just so many that we had to split everything up into two you know christmas eve and christmas day celebrations so like once everybody starts showing up at the house like i could totally start relating to christmases like this <laughs> nothing ever went tragically bad like in this or anything but i understand like the clutter and the space and and the kind of getting on each other's nerves a little bit but always in the end getting together and still having a great time and of course you know once the presents get handed out like everybody's everybody loves everybody again <laughs> you know by the end of the night everything is great we don't actually see Christmas Day, do we? No, no. This ends Christmas Eve. Yeah. When we get to the end, the last shot is Clark on the lawn having succeeded. <laughs> but uh, real quick, I want to ask before we pass on the lights, 
I know you live in an apartment now, but did your family ever put lights up on the house growing up? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And some years more serious than others. Um, I just remember, like, my family, especially, like, it being very cold and, and putting on the light. Nothing as crazy, though, as Clark Griswold. When I first moved out on my own, I was, like, so obsessed with doing stuff like that. Now, not so much, but I remember my first couple apartments or first years in, like, an apartment, I put Christmas lights everywhere and on every window. Um, I just don't really have the time for that anymore. If and when I get a house, I'll definitely... Not Clark level, but I'll definitely do it. It's fair to say that while I'm not Clark Griswold, I do get very festive. I enjoy decorating for Christmas. Nice. Yeah, our family never put lights up. I always wanted to, but I was always told that it's a drain on the power and it cost too much for that reason. <laughs> but one day I would really like to just you know, put them up there, lace them up, maybe go. I mean, I don't have a very big house, but I would like to cover it entirely with bulbs in the way Clark does one year. I guess it would bring some unwanted attention, but I don't know. I would love to go all out one year for sure and, and deck the halls. I, that would be cool. You should do it because your house, like you said, is not terribly big. It wouldn't be that hard. It would be a lot of effort, but it, we could get up on this roof and put it like a Santa up there, you know, and like some reindeer and everything. I feel like now there's too much cheating. How are people? Oh, with like the um, projecting stuff onto their projecting houses. stuff and like one of my neighbors does that every year. He does it for almost every holiday because you just have to switch <laughs> switch the frame, I guess, or switch the lens. I'm not saying that can add to the decorating spirit, but I feel like that should not be just your decoration, you know? Agreed. Like, that that's cheating. Or, or people who just put, like, the big inflatable things in front of their lawn. <laughs> Part of what's cool about decorating your house for Christmas is the effort that's put into it, you know? Yeah. There's also people who pay for people to do it on their homes, and look, if you have, if you have the means, great. But like I said, I like that, I like that Christmas effort. Agreed. Okay, so I want to point out a couple of the actors who are playing the in-laws, Clark and Ellen's parents. Especially want to point out Clark's mom, played by Diane Ladd. Now, is that name ringing a bell? I definitely have heard the name. So check this out. I know some people on the network are going to love this connection. Diane Ladd is in Wild at Heart. Wild at Heart is one of, if not Nick Cage's best performances in a movie. So that movie co-stars Laura Dern. Diane Ladd is Laura Dern's mom. That movie was directed by David Lynch. The composer of the music for Christmas Vacation is Angelo Badalamenti, who is also the composer for Twin Peaks. Wow, what? <laughs> it's a pretty crazy Twin Peaks Christmas connection going on here at Cage Club tonight. That is crazy. Diane Ladd, completely unrecognizable to me. I mean, in the reel-to-reel footage, I was looking at her as the younger version of herself going, she looks familiar. And after I realized that it was her, in those old footage, she looks like her character in Wild at Heart. She's got like this big blonde beehive. She's wearing like this big pink dress. And, you know, it's like the late 50s. So it's got like that weird retro Lynchian sort of look to it for me so yeah it was just really weird how there's so many twin peaks connections running around this film i feel like you can find them in a lot of places that's for sure and then john randolph who plays clark's dad he's going to be coming back to this show because he was in escape from the planet of the apes 
which is the third Planet of the Apes movie. Which I still can't believe you haven't done yet. Well, yeah, I've been trying to find the most appropriate time. It is my favorite franchise, so... Absolutely. Getting there soon. <laughs> and then we mentioned Doris Roberts, who is on Everybody Loves Raymond. 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 This is your brother speaking. <laughs> I got the short end of the stick. <laughs> oh, no, you didn't. You're okay. You don't sound like Kermit. <laughs> what are varying voices in that show? Last time I was in New Orleans for my brother's graduation, we were just walking down, like, not Bourbon Street, but the street next to Bourbon Street. I can't remember the name right now. And Raymond and Brad Garrett were just at a corner listening to some guy play, like, jazz music. Hey, man, it's Nolans. Anything can happen. I was like, this is really cool. And I don't know, it just felt right, you know? <laughs> And then later in the movie, when Aunt Bethany shows up, who's really great, we'll talk more about her then, but she's played by Mae Castell, and Mae Castell is the voice of Betty Boop. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I didn't know that. So she goes way, way back. Wow. That's really cool. Not only do the in-laws show up, but after Clark manages to get... Oh, first of all, we should say, like, Clark manages to get the house lit up. He's been having trouble. That's why it's taken so long, and that's why this joke has sort of been drawn out for so long. I won't even say he manages it, because it ends up really being Ellen who figures it out. Yeah, so someone goes in to get some food and flicks on one of the switches next to the outlet and it turns out to be the one that Clark forgot to check and it like drains all of the energy from the town so they have to like flip the emergency switch and light everything up yeah Todd and Margo are like having dinner suddenly in the dark briefly (laughs) yeah the return of Todd and Margo right the lights go on and blind them so they like fall all over the living room and then the lights turn off for a minute and they go tripping down the stairs and they I mean they just end up getting the crap kicked out of them throughout this whole movie by by the Griswolds without them ever laying a hand on them which is amazing yeah and so like that is going I guess full Griswold is when you light your house up like it's on fire <laughs> and then I can't believe it took this long actually I it, it you know this movie kind of flies by it's only about 90 minutes or so but I was still surprised when he showed up I was like oh yeah he hasn't shown up yet cousin Eddie Oh, such a good... Because I picture myself, perhaps in your shoes, like as a first-time watcher and not knowing anything about this film, but having hopefully seen The First Vacation. In today's age, you would never be able to hide that Cousin Eddie wasn't in this film. Just like how he's going through all the relatives. He's calling his father-in-law dad. Like, he's just so happy. And he puts his arm around Eddie and doesn't even realize it. And just like that, Eddie? Eddie? (laughs) house sure does look swell clark thanks eddie i hope it enhances your holiday spirit (laughs) dear Catherine. eddie (laughs) oh the house is gorgeous clark (laughs) eddie i hope you didn't do this all on our account clark he's pretty much in shock because the lights worked and then he's in double shock because eddie's shown up unexpected and you know uninvited probably a guy one he probably never thought he would have to see but a handful more times in his life and two in his own home you know right (laughs) oh man and then it it brings one of my favorite lines of this which is like is it clark you surprised it's like if i woke up tomorrow with my head sewn to the carpet i wouldn't be more surprised than i am now that is such a 
clever freaking like random line. Randy Quaid ends up having one of my favorite lines in the movie later on when he's emptying the septic tank into the sewer. Oh god, yes. And, and the neighbor comes out and he just turns and he goes, shitter's full. Shitter's full. Like somehow shitter's full has made it onto t-shirts, backpacks, lunchboxes. It's crazy. This is just a movie of lines, you know? Like, you know, he shows up in that trailer and his two kids, Rocky and Ruby Sue, like it just... It just Perfect. And like Doris Roberts, I guess, is their grandmother or whatever. And he's going to like. Well, I'm trying to figure out. That's the thing I want to talk to you about. So, how is Cousin Eddie related? So, Cousin Eddie is Ellen's cousin. Yeah, so I guess it's not their. I guess that's their grand aunt. Yeah. No, no, no. The wife. The wife is Ellen's cousin. Because Clark says later to his boss, my idiot cousin in law. Yeah. And I think in the first movie, she says, we're going to visit my cousin. We never meet his parents. Because for the longest time, I just thought that that was, his, that was her brother. No, no, no. And that's not the relative. The relative is the wife. Are you sure the wife is the cousin? 100%. 100%. By blood? That's the blood cousin? Okay. Yeah. Because, like, the joke is... It's either made in Vegas Vacation or in the original Vacation. They're kind of like, we all have a relative of ours who just marries somebody who's just terrible. Well, she loves him. She gets a kick out of it. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure that's the... Like, I was looking this up, too. I'm pretty sure that's the... They call him Cousin Eddie or whatever, but... Right. No, I mean, like, I mean, who even knows if he's blood-related? Because we've had uncles in my family that were just my dad's really good friends that just became uncle this, uncle that at times. That kind of happens with just close friends of the family. (laughs) You know, even with the invention of the internet, I never decided to figure that out. I just always wanted to try and figure it out just by rewatching the movies over and over again to see if I could find out where it fit into place. But then I was like, you know what? I'm not going to go watch National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation 2. Cousin Eddie gets stranded on a desert island or whatever. I could be I could be wrong, and I'm trying to check now, and there's like no definitive answer on the internet, so I guess I guess that's fine. It's part of the lore. It's the mystery <laughs> of, of Cousin Eddie. Is he even real? Do you think he's just a figment? He's a delusion of Clark. If only that could work somehow. (laughs) Oh, man. He's just the worst. You know, I mean, it's kind of been all sliding downhill for the most part. As soon as Clark got some kind of victory with the lights actually working, and then his, you know, idiot cousin shows up and just takes the wind out of it immediately. So he's just tumbling downhill slowly and slowly. Almost literally, and well, very literally in a second, but he's fast down a hill. But other cousin Eddie like line that I, or against cousin Eddie line that I love here, and it happens like soon after. Once they're in the house and they're nice callback, they have the Wally World eggnog mugs. Oh, I thought those were just reindeer mugs. No, they're actually like Wally from Wally World. Oh, because I one callback I saw is Cousin Eddie is wearing the white shoes that he gives a pair of to Clark in the first movie. He's oh, like, yeah. I noticed how much, and I always thought Eddie just gave him his pair because they were so dirt poor that he couldn't <laughs> actually afford to buy Clark his own pair. But it turns out like he actually did have his own pair and kept them and wore them to Christmas. Or maybe he bought new ones. Who knows? Those are Wally mugs too, because like a couple years ago they started actually selling them. Like in Hallmark stores? There's just tons and tons of merchandise from here you probably wouldn't expect. Like, it's reached a level that is just... Because it's a Christmas film, so every year there's a a day you have to think about it. Not have to, but you know. Well, I think that's it. Like, just by virtue of it being 
not just a holiday film but a Christmas film and not just that but like a really good one and one that's part of like a pretty established franchise already absolutely so the line I wanted to say like and again it happens right and they're, they're like talking among the eggnog and it's like how long are you planning to stay stuff like that Clark subtly is like can I refill your eggnog get you something to eat drive you out in the middle of nowhere and leave you for dead <laughs> and he's like oh no thanks Clark you know just <laughs> it's almost as if he's saying it to himself or under his breath yeah but in this world it's like out loud and that's like fine you know <laughs> there's something that's sort of come up from time to time and with with the with this it makes a lot more sense and it's kind of funny that the Simpsons debuted around the same time as this movie because a lot of the writers from National Lampoons were sort of harvested and brought over to the Simpsons and even to this day you know a lot of talent comes out of there and goes to the Simpsons writing room but I get with the family in here I get a lot of like Homer Simpson moments I get a lot of vibes from this movie that I will recognize again later down the line in my lifetime like as a as a teenager watching the Simpsons and then come back to this movie going like oh this feels like one of the things that kind of did that kind of stuff first for me I don't know it's not that uncommon I mean there have been idiot dads throughout the history of sitcoms and stuff but like just in general just sort of that National Lampoon's sort of flavors like really coming through in this perhaps in its episodic nature you could see the lineage of American comedy when you take it from the Harvard Lampoon to National Lampoon to the Simpsons and so on so now, okay, so this is pretty interesting, I thought. Coming up is a scene that I was watching this movie and I really perked up when this scene happened, and it's the sledding scene. Yeah. And I didn't realize when I was a kid, and a couple times, I guess, because it just some of this goes by fast, what he's spraying on the sled is like some kind of space age thing that they've concocted at his lab at work that like isn't supposed to be on the market or something like i never got that i thought that it was just you know he was spraying it with pam or something (laughs) and then like the gag was just that he used too much of it but it's even funnier now catching catching that that he used like this um high-tech sort of like top secret spray on it yeah we get a weird sci-fi element in this but yeah, I mean that the one silly thing about this scene, and, and it's funny, it's hilarious. I go like it goes later, dudes, puts the hood up. But uh, his whole family's at the beginning of the hill, and then they're also at the bottom of the hill. Oh, are they? I didn't notice that. Uh huh. Yeah, because that's where they recover him. But whatever, you know, it's a comedy gag. It doesn't take me out of the film. But <laughs> I just love the trail of fire behind his sled. I thought that was genius. <laughs> I mean, it plays with the world they're building. This this is a silly movie, and it, it, it's a silly scene, but it's very funny. I like how they use the advent calendar from time to time to show like the, what day of Christmas we're on. What a beautiful calendar, too. Yeah, advent calendars are great. Over the last couple of years, my nephew's gotten like the Star Wars advent Lego calendars and and things. And you know, growing up, I was like, you don't know how lucky you are because growing up, we just had like the mini chocolate one, or <laughs> like we never got big cool advent calendars really. But I like how they use that in this movie to sort of like show the passage of time over the month. Yeah, and it's just like that's that old Victorian one is just. That, I know it's not cool like Star Wars, but it is like a beautiful thing. That would be a wonderful gift for anybody. If I ever find that, I'm going to gift it to my mother. If, if I were to buy my own advent calendar, Brian, it might, it would probably not be a Lego Star Wars advent calendar. I'd, I, I'd probably just get, you know, a normal Star Wars Christmas calendar. <laughs> the Star Wars Christmas special calendar. 
That'd be cool. Oh, I also love how the sled ends up on the curb in front of the house, like so many other things throughout this movie. It's like a graveyard of the failures of the film. Right. (laughs) His failures just keep piling up in front of his house. (laughs) Like next to the the frickin' Eddie's RV. So, like, it makes sense. Oh, have you gone sledding yet this season? I have not. I haven't been sledding in a while. I don't know if I'm built for it anymore. Did you used to sled as a tyke? Were you into sledding as a kid, or did you? were you, like, not into the cold? I mean, I just assume every kid likes to play in the snow, but, you know, there are kids out there that just don't like the cold and don't like to get wet and stuff. Oh, I love the cold. I think I've mentioned it on another podcast, you being Norwegian, that I took a trip to Norway above the Arctic Circle, and that was super fun. And even as a kid, I loved the cold. My father owned supermarkets, and... I guess, like, he got a promotional item that was this really cool... I don't know what you call these kind of sleds, but it's like a sled that almost looks like a snowmobile. Like, it doesn't have an engine, but, like, you know, you sit on it as a steering wheel. I think I know what you're talking about. It was awesome. I wonder what happened to that sled. Hey, this is kind of funny. Here's a little sneak peek of uh, Third Time's an article. Apparently, in the original article that Hughes wrote, that John Hughes wrote, the Griswolds are part Norwegian. Oh, that's interesting. So listen to this. This is kind of funny. This is some arguing in the kitchen. You don't know good eating, Grandpa Swenson said. The Swedes do? Grandma Alice asked. Hell yes, we do, Grandpa Swenson said. You Norwegians don't know your mouth from your dad, Mom said, wiping her hands on her apron. I wonder where Clark could be. It's been over an hour. He's probably having a drink somewhere, Grandma Swenson said through her nose. Mom glared at her. Don't look at me like that. He had a snootful every night we've been here. So just to give you a little taste of what's been going on in the article during Christmas dinner. That's interesting. Scandinavian family. That's not really played in in this film. (laughs) I like that Hawaiian Christmas fantasy that he has. Oh, yeah. Clark's Christmas fever dream that he has. One of the key elements here is, we didn't talk about the scene because whatever, but like when they're going shopping and I guess the most like inappropriate scene is when he's like gawking at that lingerie sales lady at the beginning. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. He gets caught by Rusty. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of puns and yeah. Maybe maybe that's a scene that might not fly today, but it just talk wise gets raunchy. We don't see anything. I was just smelling. Smiling. I was just browsing. (laughs) <laughs> for your wife or your girlfriend? Hmm. What? What happened? <laughs> Wouldn't be the Christmas shopping season if the stores were any less hooter than they are. Harder than they are. Yes. Yes. It is it's a bit nipply out. I mean nippy out. <laughs> what did I say? Nipple? <laughs> ah, there is a nip in the air, though. I was just looking at something for my wife. God rest her soul. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. Oh, no, no, she's not dead yet. We're just divorced. (laughs) Oh, good golly. Tis the season to be merry. Well, that's my name. Oh, shit. Yeah, it's filled with innuendo. Yeah, you know, so he wants this bonus because he's already put the deposit down for a pool and he needs the check to cover it, which, irresponsible, Clark, but whatever. And then he has just, like, the Hawaiian Christmas song, you know? Yep. Malakalikimaka is a thing to say On a bright Hawaiian Christmas day That's the island greeting that we send to you From the land where palm trees sway Here we know that Christmas will be green and bright The 
the sun to shine by day and all the stars at night. Melikilikimaka is a wise way to say Merry Christmas to you. And he's just seeing the pool, and it's his family having fun. And then I love how you see again. This is a, this is like a fever dream, I guess, or just like not really a fever dream, but a fantasy. He's looking out the window. I love how you see cousin Eddie like about to jump in the pool, and he's wearing like his shirt still and like flippers, or it just it disgusts him. And he mentally changes it into the the woman from the department store, and we don't see her topless or whatever, but like it's implied that she gets naked, and that's really a call back to the other vacation films i think yeah in the first movie we have the christy brinkley which wasn't a fantasy like she was actually real um but it presented like an opportunity for him to act on but in this one it the woman actually did work at the store but she is not there at the pool because the pool has not been dug yet or any of that (laughs) so you said you haven't seen vegas vacation i've not seen the whole thing there's a scene in vegas vacation where christy brinkley comes back like oh really you see her in like the red car and he's driving by and he like mouths to her he's like you yeah and it's just like, like they recognize each other but she drives a little further and she has like a baby in the back seat oh and she just kind of shrugs her shoulders and then you know they, they go on their separate ways so it's like a nice like it, it was it was like a fun little nod to that and it's a good callback what i like about that scene is he gets caught by the little girl by cousin eddie's daughter yeah and they have like a really sweet little talk, you know, kind of like a little heart to heart where she explains how like Santa never comes and they're very poor and so they don't get any presents and they don't really think Santa's going to show up now. And, you know, she's got a dirty mouth and she's really adorable and all that. Well, she's, she's like shit and bricks. I mean, shit and rocks. But it reminds me that at its core, this movie really is like a heartfelt Christmas movie. Like it does have a lot of heart and there is a good moral center. And like, I think maybe that's part of why it stands the test of time. And like, you could watch this after watching It's a Wonderful Life or A Christmas Story. To me, kind of earns that classic status by not just being 100% reliant on its comedy, but you actually care about these people. You don't want them to get hurt. You want them to have a good Christmas. Like, as much as an idiot as, like, Clark is, like, that's why I care about him. That's why I want him to succeed, because he fails so often. Yeah, and it's not in a way, it's, like, genuine, you know? Even European Vacation had kind of a mean streak to it. Yeah, I don't really get that from here. You're you're always rooting for Clark, you're right, and you're also, because you know he has a good heart. That none of this is coming from, like, one-upmanship, if that makes sense. Everything is coming because he wants to have the perfect Christmas. Yes, for him, but also for his entire family. And it's really about family for him. And the scene with Ruby Sue, it's, like, perfect for that. He kind of, like, laughs about Cousin Eddie, but he's not even in his head thinking, like, oh, my God, I can't believe he's not getting gifts for him for Christmas. He's sad about it. Yeah, there's another moment when him and Eddie are kind of walking through the department store, and Eddie drops the facade, and he sort of talks about money troubles and how he actually had to sell the farm and that they live in the RV. And Clark, again, sees him for who he is like, for a moment, you know? And I think Clark, I think to Clark, that goes a long way and that might be why he puts up with so much of Eddie's shit is because he's just that's the way he is he's only human you know he's human like the rest of us and like he has the same troubles he just isn't as good as some people are communicating them and has you know maybe certain behavioral issues as well not gonna say he is a socially upstanding citizen or anything like that but like yeah like he's a he's a person too you know and Clark can 
see that. Ultimately, everyone in this film is a good person, with the exception of, like, Brian Doyle Murray's character of the boss. Although, he has, like, this Grinch who stole Christmas turnaround at the very end, which I very totally true, forgot, yeah. which was hilarious, where he just has a complete change of heart, and it grows four times bigger than it was. It's true, yeah. <laughs> but all these little things, like, all that kind of stuff really helps. Like, it really helps sell the comedy side to it, too, the other side of it. It can work with stuff like Nathan a gun from time to time but like i feel like it's extremely rare and usually it's the same team you know like stuff with airplane naked gun it's the same writers director star leslie nielsen and everything like it's been tried a lot and for me it rarely comes out on top like this yeah you're absolutely right with that and then i guess we are at the moment of truth which is christmas eve like I mentioned earlier, in our house was just always crowded and crazy and hectic. I mean, I, I always loved it for that. And uh, I feel like they capture a lot of that pretty well here. Yeah, especially, I think you said it before, but like the arrival of uh, Uncle Lewis and Aunt Bethany is, oh my God. Aunt Bethany is amazing. Talk about one-liners, everything out of her mouth. Like, is Rusty still in the Navy? Is your house on fire? I should probably just play the clip. Is your house on fire, Claw? No, Bethany, those are Christmas lights. Don't throw me down, Claw. I'll try not to, Aunt Bethany. Is this the airport, Claw? We're here! Oh, that was fun. I love riding in cars. (laughs) When did you move to Florida? Ellen... Are you still dating, Claw? It isn't every day somebody moves into a new house. This house is bigger than your old one. Is Rusty still in the Navy? Like, when Aunt Bethany shows up, the character has, like, dementia, right? But it's never, it never feels like it's in poor taste. I just think with the language of, like, the absurdity, like, if this was, like, a straight-laced film, and then you had an Aunt Bethany character, it would feel kind of mean. But just the way that this, how absurd this movie is, because we've all, you know, dementia is a very serious thing and a very scary thing, but we've all had relatives who are losing it a little bit, you know? And while it's not always funny, it's also not always sad, if that makes sense. Like, we have to have these things as, like, human beings to cope. Aunt Bethany is a hero to a lot of people because she's an awesome character, but she pairs so well with, like, I guess her husband, Uncle Lewis. She's, like, has to mention, he's, like, not a pleasant guy either, and he's, like, fed up, but the way he treats, like, Clark, he's like, Grizz, get my stogie, and stuff like that, you know? They pair so well. I don't know, I'm sure you've had it in your family, like, the kind of distant really older relatives that come over, you know? And there's just a weirdness about this couple, and there's a weirdness about, like, when that, especially when you're a kid, I will say, about people like that. And again, I think what's nice, too, and what makes it not so mean, that despite her obvious dementia, they still make her an important part of the festivities. They don't cast her aside and, like, treat her like she's useless. Like, you know, they, they ask her to say grace, and they're very much catering to her, and they're very nice to her, you know? Yeah, she's included. Yeah. Yeah, and that, like, makes it more, di- like, the comedy of her a lot more digestible than if they were just being like, who's this weirdo here, you know? Right. So I'll tell you this much. She's portrayed way better in this movie than she is in the article. Like, in the article, there's a blackout that lasts much longer than it does in this movie. In the article, the 
character who Aunt Bethany is based on thinks she's going into the bathroom and she ends up falling down the basement stairs. Ooh. Um, and she ends up like wandering around the basement, like bumping into things and stuff and all that kind of thing. So she is faring much better in the movie than she did in the article. I love the bit when Clark is given the gift and it starts like meowing. And then just the way he's like holding it, like that's a really great bit of physical comedy from Chevy Chase right there, holding the box. Yeah, because it's obviously an empty box, but like he's totally, yeah, he, he he's so gifted. It's a shame that people don't like him and he's, he's he can be a big jerk, you know, because he's so gifted. So then it's just like one thing after the other. They have the turkey gets like cooked wrong. That was pretty gross. I remember when I first saw that. It's so disappointing, too, because the turkey really does look good. It's like, if this tastes half as good as it looks, we're going to be in for a real treat. And it just... And again, the niceness of them, that nobody is angry, you know? They all put in a good effort. They're like... And she's crying. Cousin Eddie's wife, or if you're going to forget her name. She's crying because obviously it's bad. And they're all like, no, no, just a little dry. And they're like chewing it. Eddie has that great line where he's like, he's like, save the neck for me, Clark. It's just like, so he's so gross. Now that we're talking about it, I realize like it's such a, it has such a good heart to it. Like nobody is angry there. Nobody is like they're they're upset, but they're just they're so nice. They're trying to make the best of it. Exactly, exactly, and it's so nice, you know. <laughs> they're all trying to pull together and and make it work, but things just keep happening. Like earlier, the dog was drinking water out of oh, the god, the dog out of the tree, and when the one guy goes to light up a cigar, the whole tree goes up. <laughs> and, <laughs> Oh, yeah. Clark is just like, he can't like not flip out about that. Like, the tree is so symbolic to Clark. When to lose the tree... Yeah, it's a symbol of the entire thing going up in flames, essentially. His whole perfect Christmas going up in flames. So he flips out pretty hard there, and that's when he goes outside and, like, cuts down a tree from his own yard and brings it inside. Yeah, he's so, like, maniacal. That's just such a great move. That's one of my favorite moves. Just getting to the point where it's like, I'm just going to go cut down that tree right there that I'm looking at. At this point, they're still, like, they think he's crazy, but they're still, like, tolerating him. The, the Everyone else in the family. Oh, I was going to mention even, like, Bethany, when they ask her to say Grace. And she's like, Grace died five years ago, or whatever it was. And then she says the Pledge of Allegiance. They don't, like, say, Bethany, correct yourself. They say it along with her, you know? Right, yeah. And so, like, one of the last major incidents, I think, to happen before the big climax that happens is the cat gets fried. Oh, yes, the cat. In the article is a dog. Oh. I know. Well, then you had to change that. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, there is the saying, save the cat, but, like, you can't you can't kill the dog. You know what? John Hughes is a monster. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> there is a dog in this movie, though. At least one shows up. Yes. A little bit of Mississippi leghound in him. And then that chair ends up on the curb with the rest of the stuff, with the tree and the sled. Uh, and I think part of the Santa is out there. Part of the lawn decorations are also on the curb now. Oh, man. And Clark's flip out here is pretty great. It reminds me of the one in the car on the way to Wally World where he's talking about how much fun they're going to have when they get to Wally World. But here where he's chugging eggnog and saying what he would do if he had his boss in front of him. I want him brought from his happy holiday slumber over there on Melody Lane with all the other rich people. And I want him brought right here with a big ribbon on his head. And I want to look him straight in the eye, and I want to tell him what a cheap, lying, no-good, rotten, four-flushing, low-life, snake-licking, dirt-eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood 
sucking, dog-kissing, brainless, dickless, hopeless, heartless, fat-ass, bug-eyed, stiff-legged, spotty-lipped, worm-headed sack of monkey shit he is. Hallelujah! Holy shit! Where's the Tylenol? Oh, my God. First of all, his face when he's chugging, when he's chugging that eggnog. It's so, like, maniacal. Do you drink eggnog? I, I don't like eggnog. Are you an eggnog guy? So I used to like eggnog, but I've increasingly grown lactose intolerant, and eggnog will kill you if you're lactose intolerant. Oh, okay. So no nog. Yeah, so Clark flips out, and Cousin Eddie gets this kind of look in his eye, and he's basically going to play Santa Claus for Clark, and he goes and he kidnaps his boss. His boss, by the way, played by Brian Doyle Murray... Yeah, uh, which is great, again. My favorite line of that flip-out was they say, it's going to be the hap-happiest Christmas since Bing Crosby tap dance with Danny fucking K. Yeah, and then, like you said, it comes back from, there was an earlier, the earlier scene we talked about, and Eddie goes like, if there's ever a gift I can get you, Clark, just let me know. And then, it's like you said, there's like a twinkle in his eye, and Eddie's like, I know what I'm getting, Clark. I'm kidnapping his boss. <laughs> and something, I I don't remember where this happens in the movie. I totally forget, but I think it's while Eddie's out doing that, there's the squirrel that comes running out of the tree throughout the house. There's all that. And, and Clark has a great line where he goes, where's Eddie? Doesn't he usually eat these things? <laughs> and then his wife has a line where she's like, no, he heard squirrels are like high in cholesterol. Yeah, yeah. Not since, not since he heard they were high in cholesterol. The lines again in this film. So good. So good. Eddie comes back with the boss, and that was just hilarious when the boss is like, uh, you know what, you're right. What looks good on paper, you kind of always forget, like, when you're affecting the little guy and everything. It's it's people like you that really remind me, like, what a tyrant I've been, and I shouldn't be such an asshole. It's almost as if it's like he was Scrooge, and, like, he was visited by three ghosts, and then kidnapped by Cousin Eddie, and brought to the Griswolds. <laughs> yeah, like, it's his story suddenly goes into Clark's story. It's like, if we only saw the Bob Cratchit part. It's like a Bob Cratchit Christmas instead of Scrooge's point of view. I mean, we should mention to people, like as a reminder, if you haven't seen the movie in a while, that instead of a bonus, he gets uh, the Jelly of the Month Club instead from the company. That's what really sets him off, right? He yeah. thinks that he's getting his bonus because the mailman comes back and he's like, hey, this fell through the seat crack. And it is, it's from his company, you know, but it, right, it isn't a bonus at all. It's the Jelly of the Month Club. In the book, his dad comes home with a lighter. He's like, here's my bonus right here and he pulls out a lighter <laughs> oh god <laughs> well it was 1959 maybe it was a really nice lighter fair fair but uh what is it eddie is like when clark announces the jelly of the month club he's like what do you say he's like that's the gift that keeps on giving clark yeah the whole year <laughs> <laughs> yeah no but you're right like there's that whole element where you know he just the boss gets kidnapped and with that bow that clark prescribed to be on his head and you know he, he changes he changes his his tune right away and then there's a SWAT team invasion because I mean rightfully the wife called the cops because her husband was kidnapped on Christmas Eve <laughs> I like how she though like like at the end of the conversation she even like essentially calls him an asshole for not giving bonuses <laughs> <laughs> yeah even the cop is like that's pretty low mister I love the second unit directing on this it's just such great action directing when they SWAT the house it, I mean it reminds me of guarding test it had a great SWAT scene in it but I just love the energy here. It's like an action movie for, you know, a minute, and it plays so great. 
Oh yeah, no, it's so good. Did you notice when the cops tell everyone to freeze that Ellen has her hand on Clark's bulge? Yeah, like, the, and this is on. Like again, I've seen this movie. Maybe it's probably in my top five movies that I've seen most. And if I noticed that, I didn't remember it. This is the first time I really noticed that because she takes her hand off of it. For, I forgot what to do, and then she puts it right back on to meet the wife of the boss. Oh yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. Welcome to our <laughs> lovely home. Oh man. Yeah. No. That's that's a little. What do you think that was about? Oh, it's just comedy freeze frame, man. All the way. Like I didn't catch that on the first or second or even third viewing, probably. And I don't remember the first time I saw it, but I was like, oh my God, I never caught that before. That makes this 10 times funnier. That was just her natural instinct, I guess, was to grab him. Yeah, it's a little weird. (laughs) It's just, to me, it's just, you know, a great freeze frame is comedy gold. and, And it's sort of like, what's wrong with this picture? You get a minute to sort of peruse the screen to see what's going on. And then you find that and you're like, wait a minute. So it's just a great sight gag. Yeah, absolutely. And Clark's going to get his bonus and then some, so he'll definitely get that pool. Yeah, and Cousin Eddie can come swimming in. So did you grow up with a pool by any chance? Did your family have a pool in the yard? Yeah, yeah, no, we had a pool. I wasn't much of a swimmer. Now, so it was like I had a pool and I didn't swim a lot. Now that I don't have a pool, I love to go in people's pools and go swimming. Yeah. I also grew up with a pool and don't have one now. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to go swimming all the time. I mean, as a kid, we used it all the time. It's not like I didn't like to swim, but like, maybe that's it. Maybe I just like to go swimming. I just want to. So after the whole SWAT team raids the house, Ruby Sue tells everyone to like go running outside because she sees like a shooting star or something. And like the sewage has been building up because of like the combination of Cousin Eddie's waste and like the gas and everything has caused like just a toxic cloud, I guess, around Clark's house. And so that's when Uncle Lewis throws the match from his stogie over his shoulder and launches the Santa up into the sky. <laughs> And we get we get flying Santa, and then Aunt Bethany starts leads them again in another song. The, yeah, the star the Star Spangled Banner and the rockets red glare. She's very patriotic, Aunt Bethany. <laughs> and then the movie ends with Clark standing on the lawn, and the last words are "I did it." And I, that reminds me now of the movie Memento. Wow. <laughs> Just because spoilers at the end of that movie, he did it. And there's a shot of him with the realization that he has done what he has set out to do. So just through all of the pain and heartache that Clark and his family have gone through, like it ended very well for them. He got his bonus, the family is closer together, and Christmas was saved. Yeah, and we get our cool vacation, I think her name is Mavis Staples or something like that, vacation theme song back. Which has grown on me. I mean, I'm glad they didn't end this on Holiday Road. I think at this point now, this movie has earned its spot to stand alone. And it's funny because... Well, not funny, but like this movie... Like that Ray Charles song that plays in the attic is like a good song. And the, the Hawaiian Christmas song is a good song. And they never released a soundtrack for this film. Really? Which is sad. you think they would try to milk it because like you can get like the Christmas songs, you know? Maybe they just couldn't license it all after the film or something, but... Maybe, maybe it's possible. I mean, this a Warner Brothers movie, I mean, it's not like they're unknown for having soundtracks to their films or anything, so it's kind of strange. Even after it's developed this huge following and everything. Like, you could get individual songs, obviously, but there's no, like, completed soundtrack. I'm surprised Mondo hasn't done one yet or something. Maybe this Christmas. Huh. 
it seems like right up there alley yeah absolutely that would be a really cool mondo if you're listening let's do this so that brings us to book club which today is article club which i guess is third times an article this was unexpected brian let me tell you i knew that the original vacation was based off of an article by john hughes but i did not know that this movie was based off an article by john hughes until this morning (laughs) i did like this frantic internet search to try and find it the original vacation article is very easy to find online it was reprinted a year or two ago in its entirety multiple places it just found its way around the net but i had to really dig and go to like archive sites to find this one i'm not even sure it if this is a hundred percent authentic to be quite honest with you i believe it is but there's one or two typos so someone probably transcribed it right out of the magazine onto the internet wow that's really cool though i did read it i have gone through it i have like one or two little readings i'd like to read from it. it's extremely short i don't know its actual page length because i have it in pdf form here but it's like you know on the pdf it's like 18 pages long and it's called christmas 59 by john hughes and it was in the december 1980 issue of national lampoon magazine Yeah, I was curious what book club was going to be, but naturally it's article club and that makes sense. It's the source material. Yeah, and that's a thing that's been happening now that it's season one forever is I've sort of, I've been doing a couple episodes without books and I decided, you know, if there's a source material, I think I might go ahead and do that from time to time. So for instance, like when I did Jaws 3D, I should have probably just read the original novel instead of reading the novelization of Jaws the Revenge, which is Jaws 4. <laughs> so for instance, like, you know, <laughs> um, if, if something like that ever comes up again down the line, like for Death Wish, for instance, like maybe I'll read the original source material for Death Wish and see if anything relates that could be mentioned in Death Wish 3, which does not have its own novelization. Oh. So there's one thing about this article I wanted to talk about, and then one or two little quick passages I want to read. But the first thing that I teased way early on is a character in this article that is not in this movie, but I believe was sort of a prototype for a character that found its way into another John Hughes film, that film being 16 Candles. The character in that film being Long Duck Dong... Oh, no. Yeah, exactly. And the character in this article goes by the name of Zung Wu. Great. Now, the reason that I believe that this character is the same is because in the article for Christmas Vacation 59, two of the elderly grandparents bring along this Vietnamese student that they basically just befriended and now sort of take care of and eventually he comes over and has dinner with them and they decided it would be nice to bring him to Christmas and in 16 Candles there's the grandparents that come to the wedding and they bring with them an exchange student from Japan that they have been taking care of so I couldn't help but think that the two were related somehow. I mean, we have the same writer, and basically this character acts very much like that. Like, it's hard to read because it is all the broken English, and that's the whole joke. Clearly, he is only there to be a joke based on his race, and it's it kind of ruined the article for me, to be quite honest. Uh, we haven't done 16 Candles yet here, but... 
I'll definitely look into that because it's too many, like you said, too many coincidences, both John Hughes stuff. He definitely just used that already for 16 Candles. And thank God it doesn't ruin Christmas Vacation. <laughs> it's just so strange to me. I was just really not expecting it. Aside from that, a lot of this is really funny. It's really good. So I'm just going to go through. I went, I mentioned a couple of the differences along the way. Instead of a squirrel in the tree, it's a bird. Instead of the cat getting fried, it's a dog. A lot of the names are different. I mean, there's still Audrey and Rusty and Clark, but a lot of the other names are different. There's more kids. Like there's, there's another quote unquote Griswold. There's more cousins. The bonus is a cigarette lighter instead of the jelly of the month club. There's actually a pretty hilarious sequence during a blackout and they have to open up their presents during the blackout and pass around a flashlight to see what they got or guess it just by feeling like that's funny but i think it would have slowed the pace of this film yeah and it's not cinematic you can't just sit in the dark opening presents you know you have to be able to see what's on screen right (laughs) good point good point yeah (laughs) but i just wanted to read like one or two examples just so you could get the feel of what was adapted and you know if it was similar or not so this is just the open opening paragraph, which I thought it set the table pretty well. All in all, it was a pretty exciting Christmas, what with the relatives and the presents and the fun and the cops and Aunt Hazel's dog blowing up in our living room. Mom and my Aunt Martha wanted to have one of those fun old-fashioned Christmases that people on TV have, where everybody wears ties and sweaters and sits by the fireplace and makes Christmas tree ornaments out of food. But as Dad said, the only reason those people have fun is they're getting paid for it. (laughs) I like that. So in the article, it's more like um, the mom who is like gathering everybody, like her prerogative and her priority to have this big family Christmas and not so much on Clark. Yeah, yeah. When you said that, I noticed that. I was just going to ask about that. That's interesting. And the dad kind of seems a little cynical here. Much more so than in the uh, original vacation article. Like the dad in this is much angrier and it's not centered or focused on him as much either. But he's still he's still there. And there's a passage about him I'm going to read in a minute. But this next passage just reminded me of being a kid around Christmas time. Did you ever try and sneak a look at any of your gifts when you were a kid? Try and find out where they were hidden? Of course. My mother was pretty good at hiding them, but of course I tried. Uh, This is the next passage I wanted to read is not in the movie, so I wanted to share this one. It's Rusty sort of teaching his cousins how to do it. Oh, this is fun. I had a ball that night. My cousins and my sisters and I waited until everyone went to bed. Then we went downstairs and looked at our Christmas presents. Dale was kind of a clod about his presents, just rattling them and trying to guess the contents. No, I told him. You carefully take the tape off and look inside. Then you put the tape back. I demonstrated on a package that was on the top shelf of the downstairs hall closet. Holy cow, I said. It's a BB gun. I was getting a BB gun. Dale wanted to take it out right away and go outside and shoot a bird or a car, but I told him it was one thing to peek at your presents and another altogether to play with them. My little sister made a mess of one of her presents and then started crying because she knew she was going to get caught. (laughs) Was that your strategy? Oh, um, partially, yeah. I did a lot of shaking. You know, I tried the tape thing once or twice, but I got too scared because they would always sort of, you could always tell, you know. I was like, oh, I'd get a, probably get away with it if, you know, I did it once or twice, but I didn't, never wanted to push it. Yeah, yeah. Like, and honestly, I wasn't scared that I was going to get in trouble. I kind of just, like, didn't want to disappoint my mother, you know what I'm saying? Spoil the surprise? Yeah, spoil the surprise even for, like, her giving me the gifts, you know. That makes sense. So is this written from the point of view of Rusty, this article? Yeah. 
Yeah, and so is the original one as well. Oh, okay. They're both based on John Hughes's real experiences as a kid. So in the original one, they're going to Disneyland, and it's about when he was a kid driving, you know, cross country to Disneyland. But it's extremely embellished, of course. Yeah. And even fictionalized, as is this one as well. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope. I hope with that whatever the Long Duck Dong character is, Zungwu. Zungwu. I really hope that's like let's be funny rather than he really felt that way about the Asian American or just the the Asian student that lived with his grandparents. Yikes. Like I've never read National Lampoon, but I get a sense and especially maybe in the in the 80s, right, that this was their brand of comedy was just politically incorrect was just the norm and i'm not saying it was right or anything but in a way you know people of ethnicity would get picked on a lot yeah let's yeah let's push the envelope you know not just ethnicities but a lot of it was very anti-women as well at least perceived in the lens today you know there was when we were talking with breakfast club on my show kara pointed out some articles that were very like for lack of a more scholarly term rapey towards women that John Hughes like wrote himself you know it's one of these things though and I think we were talking about comedy writers and the writers room so I just read a book on the show Friends that just came out by this author Kelsey Miller it's called I'll Be There For You the one about friends I think and she cites there's a lawsuit during the Friends thing and it was about uh, the writers room how it was very sexist and a lot of essentially blowjob jokes and like rape jokes and um the woman who sued, she was just like the typist there. She said she felt very uncomfortable. Um, she ended up losing the lawsuit because they argued freedom of speech and that that was part of the creative process. Wow. And she goes into it how basically comedy writers' rooms, even today, but especially like in the history of comedy writing. And look, Friends isn't the most raunchy show. so I know. If that's happening on Friends, I can't imagine what's going on in other writing rooms. Well, National Lampoons and stuff got so big from, like, that style of comedy. And like you said, a lot of Simpsons writers, they're like the godfathers of modern American comedy. So, unfortunately, one of the bad byproducts of that was just mostly male-dominated comedy writing and writer's room that were very negative towards minorities and women. And, like, you know, it was argued that, like, oh, that's comedy, that's part of the boys' club, you know? But, I mean, that's obviously not cool. Like, especially in in the lens today. Exactly. So it doesn't surprise me. And, like, John Hughes is one of... And, again, look, John Hughes is a very important part of the podcast that I do. Some of my favorite films are John Hughes films. But he's, unfortunately, one of the godfathers of that, for lack of a better word, you know? So I've got one final reading here, and then that's the end of the first ever episode of Third Times an Article, which is kind of cool. Hopefully uh, this will come back. This is the first time there's been an article adapted into a part three of a movie that I'm aware of, so I'll keep looking. Yeah, but it is cool. I like it. It's brief, and not that it's always good that it's brief, but it's nice. It's a nice little snippet. This next part I liked because this is the part where Clark cuts down the tree after the other one got destroyed. And actually what happened in the article is they drive around to go get a tree on Christmas Eve and they come home without one because uh, he wouldn't settle on a tree at the first lot and they drove around and couldn't find anything. And when they went back, the guy wanted to overcharge him. So he decided no and they would not have a tree. And then they went back and everyone got like so upset that he's storming out the house to go cut the tree down from the yard. (laughs) So that's this part.
You want a tree? You'll have a damn tree, he yelled from the garage. Mom tried to cover up all the arguing by gathering everybody into the living room to make a chain out of construction paper. It was kind of fun except for all the glue on the carpet. Uncle Dave was still laughing about Dad falling on his butt, and he kept showing us exactly how Dad fell and landed. He started laughing twice as hard when he saw Dad out the window. Clark, Mom screamed. She ran to the door and flung it open. Get inside here right now. You want a tree? You'll get a damn tree. Dad was chopping down one of the pine trees in the front yard. Mom ran upstairs crying, and Aunt Martha went up with her. What an irresponsible goofball, Grandpa Swenson said, shaking his head. Well, if your damn daughter hadn't hounded him so bad all these years, he wouldn't be out there now, Grandpa Pete said, defending Dad. Wow. Dad brought the tree into the garage and attached the stand. He was in a much better mood. He always is after he does something really stupid. I had to take that tree down anyway, he told me. May as well save 25 bucks, huh? We've got a lot of pines, Dad. What do you think pioneers and the old timers did? Go to a church Christmas tree lot? Heck no. They used one of their own trees. After a while, Mom came downstairs, and the tree was so pretty, and Dad's talk about pioneers and old timers fit so well with the idea of a fun old-fashioned Christmas that mom gave him a kiss and said she was sorry and all the cheer and stuff came back and lasted until the bird flew out of the tree (laughs) you see where this christmas vacation story definitely built out of this looking for the christmas tree on christmas eve would have been hilarious maybe in another film but it totally again would have ruined the pace of this film plus i feel like that has been done before you know like even in a christmas story they go to the christmas tree lots and that's just conventional i like that how it started in the movie of them going and trekking through the woods in the beginning and freezing to death yeah because i mean you mentioned while we were talking about the film like how the tree is a symbol of the christmas he wants to have and in that first scene when he finds that tree there's almost like that heavenly light on it (laughs) right yes So that when it burns down, again, it's like the burning of his perfect Christmas. I have to ask, why did the police come in the article? What happens is they call the fire department when Aunt Bethany falls down the stairs and they're waiting for an ambulance to come. And during the blackout, the Zung Wu character has basically robbed them and taken a bunch of their stuff and thrown it in one of their cars. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, and has stolen the car. And as he's driving the car down the street, it crashes right into the ambulance. And that's why police are on the scene, because then the police come because there's been a robbery. And yeah, it's really different. It's very problematic. I'd say so. Jeez. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> but it's still it's still a nice ending. But that's what's up with Book Club. The book or the article or the source material or whatever, like, it turns up some dark stuff from time to time. And I don't know. I mean, it's entertaining. I'll tell you that. <laughs> The discovery, the discovery, not the content all the time, but just the whole concept of it to me is just mind-blowing. Definitely. I mean, Ma- the Mad Max, just of the episodes I've been on, the Mad Max book club was that was pretty good. There wasn't anything too controversial, if I don't remember. Yeah, because that, that was just a really good book, too. But the Rocky Three and the Godfather Three both had very weird, like, penis scenes, I guess is the best way to put it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've had feedback on that Godfather 3 book club episode with the whole surgery, with all the surgery stuff. Like, oh my God, that was... So, 
former co-host of Monkey Club, Christian Larson, and friend of just about every show of the network, friend of the network, Christian Larson, he goes, yeah, I listened to the Godfather episode, and he said, he's like, the book club, and my response was, oh no, you heard that? And then my second reply was, wait a minute, I want people to hear my show. <laughs> That's so great. But my first reply was, oh dear, someone else heard that. Because it is, again, you didn't write it, but you are reading it and you are sharing it with the world. And I, I think that's part of the Godfather lore that's definitely swept under the rug. Because what the hell was that? And I guess I'm just here to take those rugs and shake them out real good and make sure everyone knows what's hidden underneath them. Yeah, and for your listeners who did not hear, not to plug your own show, but for those listeners who did not hear Godfather 3 episode, because again, maybe you're not a fan of the Godfather 3, shame on you, but definitely listen to Book Club. I'm sorry, Mike, but they have to hear it. They have to know what we're talking about. Check out that episode, the Mad Max episodes that he was on. That's a two-parter with Kara and him, where I dubbed the Late Night. Late Night Rodriguez, I like it. But where else can people hear your voice? I mean, you have your own show. Why don't you tell us about that real quick? What's happening in December? Yes, yeah, so well, I've been shamelessly teasing it this entire episode, but obviously, or maybe not obvious to some people, some third times in charm. Well, I feel like if you're a third times a charm fan, then you've heard me before, but I host High School Slumber Party on the network, and we're having, you know, a blast. October was really fun with our dabbling in horror, and I think I mentioned it. Not really many November specials, but good episodes. December, however, is a fun month, and we will have a Christmas special. It will be very fun. I've been working on it, and I hope you enjoy that. And the movie we're doing, I, I mentioned, for the Christmas one is Anna and the Apocalypse, which I've never seen, but... It's the only Christmas high school film that I can wrangle up. Listeners, I want you have some homework. <laughs> I'm giving out an assignment. Your class is third times a charm. Your teacher is Mike. And your assignment is find Christmas high school movies that revolve around teenagers in high school at Christmas time and send them either here or to Brian's show because... We got to discover these movies. I know there's got to be some out there. It's driving me crazy. Yeah, no, please help. I need all the help I can get. Something else I do want to promote on here is we just announced this both on Kyle's podcast and on my own podcast, but we will be doing a P.S. I Love Hoffman, the former show I hosted. We'll be doing some rewatches in the coming new year. Oh, great. So definitely check out our Facebook page, and we'll be opening, if we haven't already, a P.S. I Love Hoffman Twitter page because we'll be asking you guys to vote on what movies we'll be rewatching. So yeah, we'll be doing them once a month and we're probably not going to rewatch every Philip Seymour Hoffman film. I'm voting right now for Shula. <laughs> That'll be a very tough rewatch. I hope that does not win, but we're, you know, we'll we'll probably do it monthly. We haven't decided yet, but we're taking the month of December to vote for what our first rewatch will be for January and we'll take it from there. We took a little break from Phil, but we need some we need some more Phil in our life. So, and Kyle and I, we have our own shows, Him Foodie Films, Me High School Slumber Party, but we can't not have our together bro time. So, we're excited to do these rewatches. So, definitely uh keep an eye out for that and vote vote for what film you want us to do first and in subsequent weeks and months. And Mike, if you're really going to vote for Schuler, then I guess vote for Schuler. <laughs> but uh there're plenty of plenty of other great Hoffman films that I can't wait to revisit in the rewatch model. Obviously, taking that from you and Joey's Cage Club rewatches. Yeah, that's a great idea though to keep those feeds alive. Keep rewatching. I mean, yeah, I can't get enough Cage that Joey and I are doing the revisiteds all the time, 
and there's even uh, just, I mean, there's rumblings behind the scenes of something after that cage related that just keep it going because we can't get enough. But yeah, you know, maybe I'll vote for Money for Nothing. Mm, that's another one, yeah. <laughs> that Benicio Del Toro, John Cusack movie that Philip Seymour Hoffman appeared in. <laughs> I have a feeling that your two choices might not be the winners for the first one, but... <laughs> Oh, man. I mean, what do you think is going to win? I guess that's a good question for you. Probably something like The Master will will be early on. You'll probably get a lot of votes for that. Almost Famous will probably get a lot of votes, you know. You know, it's very it's popular. Twister, I bet Twister gets a, gets an early vote for rewatch. Those are some great movies to rewatch, so it's not like you're setting yourself up for failure to any degree. Even if you do have to rewatch one of the sort of smaller, lesser-known ones that, or ones that he's maybe not in, there aren't nearly as many bad ones as there are good ones in his filmography. Yeah, no, for sure. And honestly, I'm just, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm really looking forward to revisiting some of these awesome films and awesome performances from Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I am looking forward to listening to them. Lots to look forward to on the network in the year to come. It's going to get nuts. I know for a fact that this show is going to try and take it to another level next year, and we're going to get crazy. But Brian, thank you for joining me tonight to talk about Christmas, Christmas vacation, Christmas trees, neighbors, relatives, food, all the stuff that comes along with the holidays. Michael Manzi, have a very Merry Christmas. That'll do it for another episode of Third Time's a Charm. I gotta thank my guest Brian again for stopping by. Don't forget to check out his program High School Slumber Party, and be sure to hit theaters to catch Anna and the Apocalypse so you can follow along with Brian's episode later this month. Go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram, rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes and wherever podcasts live. Write to me at 3 at cageclub.me, T-H-R-E-E at cageclub.me. Check out the new season of Cinemakers with Kara, Joey, and myself as we go through the filmography of Amy Heckerling. We'll be discussing movies such as Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Look Who's Talking, and Clueless. As Brian mentioned, be on the lookout for the return of the Hoff Bros. Brian and Kyle are going to start re-watching certain films in the Hoffman filmography, decided upon by you, the fans. You'll have the chance to vote on what movie they revisit very soon, so keep your eyes peeled and always remember to ask... How's the peep in? The following Cage Club Network shows have a Patreon. Cage Club, The Contenders, Real Bad, Too Fast, Too Forever. So now you can support your favorite shows on the network and control some of the content by swinging on over to patreon.com slash cageclub. This is new territory for the network and gets us one step closer to never stopping this endeavor of recording quality content for our supporters. Well... I gotta go start wrapping presents now, so have a great holiday, and I'll catch you next time. Three, that's the magic number. Three. Yes, it is. It's the magic number. Three, Three may still be me, and that's the magic number. What does it all mean?